Good morning. My name is Julia, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. <clears throat> On most days, I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. It's a bit early today to be grateful about anything. I am not a morning person, and um, when Jenny asked me to speak, I thought, yes, I'll speak. And then she told me where it was, and it was like, oh, it's cold there. And uh, I'm actually allergic to the cold. There aren't many people who actually have an allergy to the cold, but I break out in hives from head to toe when I get cold. And it's not pretty. And I'm thinking, oh, crap. So I went online, and um, I saw Camp Free, and I'm like, oh, give me a tent cabin. I can't go. And um, I called Jenny back, and I said, where would I be staying? She goes, you'll be staying in the lodge where it's warm. I'm like, oh, crap, i got to go. <laughs> so uh, here I am. And when I found out what time it was, it was like, oh, I don't function at 8.45 in the morning. I just don't. 8.45 at night, I'm good. So, um... It was a bit tedious this morning. It's like, okay, I have to get up at 7. I have to eat. You know, I was giving two really sage pieces of advice. It was one, don't pee your pants and don't puke. So, uh, <laughs> had my breakfast early. I'm not drinking any cold water. I've got my coffee. I'm good. Um, you know, there's, I haven't felt very spiritual in the last couple of years. I don't always feel real connected to my program. Um, I've always felt connected to the higher power that I found here, but I've been in a really dark place the last couple of years. So um, it's never a coincidence that I'm asked to speak, you know, that I'm asked to speak on a certain topic. And I hope that I can convey to you what this program has given me as far as a spiritual life. Um, and I'll do the best that I can. I can only relay my story because it's already happened and this is where I am today. And the truth is that I'm in a dark place and it's difficult some days to feel very spiritual. Um, the way that um, Joy uh, heard about me was from uh, my best friend's husband. I'm traveling with my best friend's husband. And uh, when we got to the airport, um, we have a kind of twisted sense of humor. Uh, John has a, a titanium hip, and so he got escorted to a private area to be searched. And, uh, you know, he was saying from telling the guy that he was traveling with one of his wife's girlfriends. <laughs> and, um, and part of the reason I'm in a joke place is because she died a year ago. And um, she was my best friend. And she was somebody that I knew before program and through program and through every, you know, she was that person who we went through all the dirt together. We were here before, and all the insanity of the disease, in the newness of program, um, marriages, divorces, death, birth, all of those things. And, um, you know, she was talking to her sponsor one morning on the phone, and she told her just a minute she never came back on the phone. And they found her a little while later, and um, the autopsy could not conclusively say what the cause of her death was. So it was very sudden, unexpected, and um, without any reason. And again, it was a... It was something that I've been given that I don't have a reason. You know, I'm powerless. You know, it's like it would have been nice to have a reason, but I don't get to have one. And so I get to accept that she's gone. And um, so this morning, um, before she died, she sent me an email. And I'm not one of those people to read forwarded emails, so I just delete them. But she didn't send me very many emails, and I've been having a bad day. And my son was using, and my son's birthday is 7 and she sent me this email about angels talking to you from heaven. When you find a penny, it's an angel talking to you from heaven. And I read that that day, and we talked about it. And um, I went out to my car, and I went out for lunch, and I came back, and I had to park close to this curb. And I, you know, when you park too close to a curb, you got to crawl over the curb. And I went back to work, and when I came back out, that was the day she sent me this email. I found 11 pennies by the door of my car. And after she died, I found pennies everywhere. And, you know, it's like there's pennies everywhere, but I always pick them up now. And this morning on my way to breakfast, um, at 7 a.m., for God's sake, <laughs> there were three pennies by the front door um, to where we were eating. And, you know, I picked them up, and they're here with me. And, and that is my spiritual connection with her. There was a moment of... Um, when I was walking, I, I live close to the beach and I walk in the wetlands. That's where I don't do well meditating. If I sit to meditate, I go to sleep. So um, I, I walk or I rollerblade. And I was walking one day and I just had this moment that, you know, I really missed her. And, and there was just this moment that um, all of our experiences, um, 
there was that moment that she became part of who I am because of our experiences together. She just became a deep part of who I am. And then it was like, okay, this is just part of who I am. And my grief is part of who I am today. Um, and it's still really difficult. So anyway, that's my little spiritual morning. Um, that the way that I got here is I was I didn't get here because of alcoholism. I got here because of drug addiction. Alcoholism didn't bring me far enough to my knees to get here, but it was a drug addict that got me here. Um, I was living with this man, and we had a baby, uh, a three-month-old baby. My mother, who I found out later was the alcoholic in my life, was dying of cancer. And um, at the time, my drug addict was living in his mother's attic some days because he was hallucinating so bad. And, and I uh, decided that I would leave, and I left. My parents came to visit, and... Uh, while they were visiting and staying in my home, I said, I need to move out. So we went and stayed in the motel with my three-month-old son, and, and then I got, I got guilty. I thought, you know, I've got a kid with this man, and I should stay, and life, he commits suicide, and all that garbage. And so I went across town to this church, because I was, I was religious, but I wasn't spiritual, nor did I have a connection with my higher power. And so I went to this church, and I asked if I could speak to one of the priests, and um, they said, well, have a seat and, and wait, and I don't wait well, and for some reason I sat and I waited and I waited and I waited, and this man came down the hallway, and um, he may have seen those pictures of Jesus with long, flowing hair and a beard, and I don't know what this man was wearing to this day, I don't remember, because this vision is just burned in my head, because he has a long, flowing brown hair and beard, and he was the priest that I was going to talk to, and I was thinking, ah. Oh, that's bizarre. You know, priest with, I mean, serious long hair. And so whatever, <laughs> whatever possessed me that day, I told him my story. I, I believe that I told him as much as I could at that day, but I was the most honest I'd ever been with anybody. And so I told him my whole story. God knows how long it was. I don't know how long it took me to barf it all out. And, and so he, um, he just kept nodding his head. And, and then he um, shared with me that he was a recovering alcoholic. And he, goes to some, he, he went to a program called AA. There was a program called Al-Anon, and I could go and get better. Or I could do like most people do and go for a few weeks and then find another man just like the one I was with. <laughs> so he scared me into going to Al-Anon. And he said one of the most profound things that I had heard um, to that day. And I told him I was afraid that this man was going to commit suicide. And he said to me, you're going to have to give him the dignity to commit suicide if that's what he needs to do. And um, again, I was a little conflicted. It's like, this is a priest telling me this. <laughs> um, but it was the beginning of my journey. And um, thank God for that man, you know. And I don't think there's any coincidences that that's where I was. And the person that they had me speak to was a recovering alcoholic. And, and so that's how I got here. And, um, you know, I'd like to say that I was, you know, came in and got really involved and did well, but that wasn't my story. I came in, I got some resentments, I went back out. I got some more resentments, I went back out. Um, you know, I just kept doing that. And, and when I came into this program, if you went to an Al-Anon meeting and you talked about drugs or drug addiction, they asked you not to share. So I went to another program that I could actually share about that because that was really what was going on in my life. And um, there's some, you know, different ramifications to drugs versus alcohol when you're dealing with it. And um, so I started going to this little program, and it wasn't very big. And so that was, I finally came back to Al-Anon and, because it, it had what I wanted, you know, it, it had everything. And, and I, again, got some resentments because Al-Anon had a lot of rules that you had to follow, and I didn't like them much. And so I, um, I begrudgingly came back in, and it wasn't until... Um, so I married a sober alcoholic, and I had everything that I wanted, that I thought that I wanted. You know, I had married a sober alcoholic. He had some time in the program. I was a stay-home mom. I was homeschooling my son, and I had never been so miserable in my life. But here I have everything that I thought that I wanted, and um, that marriage didn't last. And uh, <laughs> neither one of those people wanted to live with me. My, uh, my husband and I split up. And my son told me that he wanted to move out, and um, I wouldn't let him, so he forced his way out of the house. You know, he just kept being bad enough to, like, finally put him out of the house. And he went to go live with his dad, and so it was just me, it was just me and God, and, and the psychotic cat that my son had brought home. 
so uh, one more time it was just me and God, and, and I got to look at, you know, at me. And that was really when I went back in Salon and said, okay, I came in crawling that time, crying, kicking, screaming, miserable. And I'd been on the program a long time, and I cried for about seven months, but I was really at a different level, at a completely different level to work this program and, and to, to have a sponsor and to work the steps in a different way. When I first came in, I worked the steps um, on a trip. My sponsor told me we were going to go to this convention, this day convention, and uh, we were going to work the steps, and I didn't know what that meant. So I said, okay. So I showed up, and we did this first step in these columns, and because it was a different program, we did them straight out of the big book, and she said, okay, come on, we're going to go outside, and you're going to read it to me. I said, no, I'm not. She said, no, really, we're going to go outside, this is your fifth step, and I said, no, I'm not doing that. And so we went outside, and again, God, you know, there's never any mistakes for me in this program. I uh, I decided to tell her my deepest, darkest secret, because I'd written it down, and didn't think I was going to have to tell anybody, and she had that same secret, you know, and it was like, wow, okay. And the power was taken out of it, and I got to let go of it, and I got to move on. And, and so when I came back into the program, I was willing to, to work my program, like I said, at a different level. I'd worked the steps, but I had just been in a different place because my resentment had set me out of the meeting so many different times. And and uh, I remember I went to this women's meeting in someone's living room, and it was on a Friday night, and we were sitting around, and after the meeting we were talking, and I started laughing, and this woman said, Oh, my God, I've never heard you laugh before, you know? When I very first came into the room, um, I had left that drug addict, and my mother had died by that time. And so it was the, the alcoholic route of my life. It was like, okay, so I'll come to this program. It's a great social program. I'll have a good time. I'll, I'll go about my business. And and I did. I just kind of la, la, la through the program. But when I came back, when I really got back into it was when I hit that bottom and came back in crawling and was willing at a new level to look at it. And so... That was really when my journey started, and not long after that, my son started using, and he moved back home and then started using again, and that was some of the other times I've ever seen. It was, um, I hadn't lived with active alcoholism or, or drug addiction in a long time, and my kid was doing drugs that I didn't even know what they were, and... Um, so I got to learn what it was like to, you know, what I thought detachment was, was amputation, and I had done that with all the alcoholics. So I remember I, um, I had called who was going to become my new sponsor, I didn't know it yet, and I said, I walked in the door and, and there was, there's my couch, and, you know, there's the smell of alcoholism and drug addiction, it's just horrible. I walked in the front door and I was just assaulted by the smell, and I have this sweaty, nasty kids sleeping on my couch, and I thought, hmm, I need to get him out of the house, and I need to burn the couch. <laughs> and so I, I called this man, and I said, look, I've got to get this drug addict out of my house. I can't live like this. And he said, well, you know, why don't you change your behavior? And I said, okay, how do I get him out? <laughs> and he says, why don't you go up to him and do something loving? Why don't you put your arms around him and give him a hug? And I said, I'm not touching that sweaty kid. There's no way. He said, do it anyway, and he hung up on me. And uh, so I went over to my son who was passed out, and the best that I could do was touch his arm, and I said, I love you. And he opened his eyes and said, I love you too, Mommy. And what happened for me was that the, it just went like this in my house. The tension was gone, and what I got to learn how to do was detach without physically kicking out my son. And so the, the next few years, well, actually, still, you know, they're, um, they're up and down. But what I've got to learn how to do is work my program with active alcoholism in my home. And my son had to leave a couple of times by force and um, a couple of times by choice. And my son was going to come with me this weekend. He said, I'll go with you. That'll be cool. And he says, register with me as an AA. And I'm like, okay. So I registered him and... Um, he got arrested at the beginning of October, so um, he wouldn't let him out of his orange jumpsuit to come with me this weekend. <laughs> um, but what I've got to learn is in the opening statement we say that um, we can find contentment and even happiness, whether the alcoholic is still using or not, and that's pretty much what I found. I got to go visit my son yesterday, and, you know, he's still doing the deal. He's not ready any of the deals they're giving him, 
he doesn't want to get sober, he doesn't think he has a problem, and what I finally came to was that his behavior bothers me, but it doesn't bother him, so I get to look at what, what bothers me about his behavior, so yesterday morning I went with his girlfriend to visit him, and we got to the jail, and I gave them my, my driver's license, and he said, do you have any other idea? And I said, well, yeah. He said, your license is expired. And I said, okay. And I'm like, whatever idea do you need? He goes, is you a passport? And I said, well, no, I don't have a passport. And he said, you can't get in. And I said, well, you know, it's only expired nine days. And he looked at me in all seriousness and said, this is a maximum security facility. Said, all right. And then he pulled up my son's name. He's like, well, he's gone anyway. And they had moved into another facility, and so we got to run over there and uh, was on the other side of town, and we got done, and then I realized it was, um, it was like noon, and I needed to be at the airport in an hour, and um, I hadn't showered, and I hadn't packed, and so we were running home, and called John, and he, he wasn't even in the right spot either, so we were both running a little late, and we run to the airport, and the plane was to wait two hours. You know, and again, it's like those things that I get to, to learn that, you know, I just get to show up and, and go and it'll happen how it's going to happen. And so that's how we got here. Um, because my son couldn't come with me, I was going to come by myself, and I really didn't want to come by myself. I didn't want to come at all. And so <laughs> I had to check for the, the, the plane tickets, and um, I'd had it for a couple of months, and so I made my plane reservations on Tuesday. And um, again, it's like, you know, I got to look at my procrastination and, and what was what was the deal for me. And I was, I didn't, I was afraid to come. You know, it was like, I have nothing to share on spirituality today. You know, it's like, I just feel so dark. And it's like, I don't, I just felt like I had nothing to give. And again, the program taught me that when I think I have nothing to give, God always gives me an opportunity to do something. One time my sponsor, um, it was when my son first was using, it was really bad, and um, it was so bad that my son had my car, and I couldn't figure out how to get it back from him, so I was borrowing someone else's car, and uh, that's a humbling thing to admit, but I really couldn't figure out how to get it back from this drug addict, and um, so my sponsor said he'd come pick me up for a meeting, and I was feeling pretty pathetic. I was in um, sweat. I think I was in flannel pajama bottoms and a pink sweatshirt that didn't match and pink fuzzy slippers and he came to pick me up and I hadn't been to this particular meeting in a while because I'd been taking a class and he said, you know, we changed the format of this meeting. I said, oh, okay. And he said, that's the last, if there's a fifth Tuesday of the month, there's a speaker. I said, good, because I need to hear one. He says, no, you're it. <laughs> I said, take me home. He said, no. I said, pull the car over. He said, no. You know, and I showed up to that meeting and thought, again, you know, I have nothing to share here. And, and besides that, I look like crap. And you want me to be the speaker at this meeting. So I did what I was asked to do, and I, I spoke at this meeting, and I just shared. You know, there was nothing else I could do but say, you know, this is where I'm at. But it just has got my car because the drug addict, and I can't get it back from him, and, and this is the truth of my life. And there was a woman there who just put her son in rehab, and she asked me if I would sponsor her. And um, that's how this program works for me. When I show up and tell the truth and, and say what's going on and, and how I'm working my program, then I get more out of it than I could have ever imagined. And uh, this last year has been um, definitely my higher power has given me a lot of gifts to um, to save me. You know, I've had a number of women ask me to sponsor them. And again, the women that I have sponsored, it's like I've had to be completely honest with them because there was nothing else I could do. There were days that I just could do nothing but cry all day long, and I was just a mess. And so I got to tell the women that there was going to be days that I would need them, and they have been amazing. I mean, these women have given me more than, than I ever could have shared with them, walking them through the steps. And this one particular woman, I asked her if I could be sure about her, and so she gave me her permission. She asked me to sponsor her a year ago, and um, she's one of the most difficult people I've ever sponsored. And um, I asked my sponsor if I could fire her because I couldn't do it. And um, he told me I couldn't fire her. And, I, and that's something I don't even believe in, but because I've been in such a dark place, it was like, I can't, I can't sponsor. I have nothing to give. This woman calls me every day, and, and, and she's been the greatest gift 
that I had in the last year. She would call me every day, and I couldn't say God, and I couldn't say higher power, and I couldn't say anything about spirituality to this woman, or she would freak out on the phone. And there would be a, an hour longer conversation. <laughs> so what I learned how to do was to shut my mouth and listen to her and take her to the very basics of the steps, which is where I needed to be. You know, I needed to be back to that I'm powerless and we're only on step one. And I remember one day after months of sponsoring her and, and begrudgingly sponsoring her, in a really shitty place and she called and I just said, I can't talk right now. She said, well, what's the matter? And I told her what the matter was. You know, I was missing my, my friend and I was going to go visit her kids and, and I couldn't talk to her. And she said, okay. And so I got up the phone and she called me back like 30 minutes later and I'm like, I'm not taking this call. And she left me a message when I listened to the message. She said, I just wanted to tell you that I love you and I'll be praying for you. And it was like, wow, you know, it's like I saw her getting it. And watching somebody else get this program is amazing. And, you know, that did more for me than I think that, that I could ever give to her. And, and we laugh about it now. I tell her, my God, you were such a pain. We couldn't talk about anything. And and she actually is, you know, working her steps and, and, and doing 12-step work and, and giving back to people in the way that she can. And, and that's just amazing. Um the other thing that I think because of this program I've gotten back I've gotten back my family to the degree that I can have my family. You know, when I when I finally did do my steps and look at my family, my sponsor at the time asked me, she said, um, did you grow up in an alcoholic home? I said, No and she said, Well when you're done with your four steps, it'll be different. She goes, You know that you grew up in an alcoholic home and and I did find that out. I had never known that um, what the progression of the disease was, but I had seen it. I'd grown up with it. I'd watched my mom progress in her disease until she was a full-blown alcoholic, and you couldn't talk to her after 8 o'clock at night. If you did, she wouldn't remember what we talked about, and she would ask the same thing over and over, so I learned just not to talk to her after 8 o'clock at night, and by then I had moved out, and um, and so, again, it was like, yes, when I did my full step, I realized that I had grown up in an alcoholic home, and it had been pretty mild, but... My whole family has been affected to some degree by by the alcoholism. My brother is an alcoholic and a drug addict, and uh, my sister and I are the Alanons, and only my sister and I have have gotten the program. And it wasn't until my son went to jail the first time that my sister finally started going to Alanon, and man, I was grateful because she's gone just enough to be really dangerous. <laughs> yeah. My family all lives in another state, and um. I thank God for that a lot. My golden rule, my golden rule is that I can spend four days with my family without having to make amends, so I only spend four days with them. And two of those days of traveling. I did decide one Christmas that I would spend six days with my dad and his wife, and I adore them both. I do, I adore them both. But by the fourth day, I had I needed to go to a meeting, so I borrowed the car. I went to a meeting. The next night, I thought, oh, I need another meeting, and I asked to borrow the car. And my stepmother said to me, she goes, do you need to go to one of those things again? I'm thinking, only if I don't want to kill you. <laughs> so, you know, they, they know that I go to program, but they don't really talk about it. It's just they know that she does that thing. She's better now that she does that thing, so we're all happy. And, and it is true. I um, had to make an amends to my sister-in-law, and she was so angry at me that um, she didn't give me the opportunity to make amends to her for three years. She wouldn't talk to me. She wouldn't see me. She wouldn't have anything to do with me. And so when I did finally make that amends, I thought, you know, the best I can do is four days. And so I really do only spend four days with them. And um, I wish that I had a different brother and sister. I love them dearly. They're amazing people. They're not the brother and sister that I wanted. You know, they're not the family that I wanted. And I was sharing with somebody here. I don't know who it was. Everybody here has been so amazing and so friendly and so warm. And I didn't know anybody but John, and he got car sick the first night and went to bed, so I was here by myself. And there's just been amazing people here. Um, and, and this is my family. But, again, my brother and sister aren't the, the siblings that I wanted. They're 10 and 13 years older than me. And, you know, they're just different. They were affected by the disease in a different way. They talk about how they had a different childhood than I did because they were in a different place with my parents than I was. And um, so what I get to do is, is love them where they are and have a relationship. 
even though it's not the one that I want to have. And I was really feeling um, sad and, and missing that not long ago, and so I decided to call my brother. And the phone was busy, and I still have dial-up internet. So I knew he was online, and so I obsessively called for like an hour and 15 minutes to a busy signal. And I just, I had to talk to him. And so I called him, and I got on the phone, and he said, hey, what's up? And I'm like, how much? How are you? He's like, I'm good. How are you? I said, I'm good. He's like, here's Deborah Ann. And he handed the phone to my sister-in-law, and I just crushed. I like, oh, I wanted to talk to my brother. And I thought about it for a little while, and what somebody taught me in this program is I get to have relationships with people at the level they're, they're capable of. And so I decided to call my brother a few weeks later, and I called him at work, and he got on the phone, and very business-like, i got to call you back. I'm like, okay, that was the brush off. And so I hung up the phone. He called me back about 10 minutes later. And he said, God, it was good to talk to you. Will you call me again? And I'm a little baffled at this point, going, hmm. This is a lot different than the conversation we had the other night. And then the light went on. It was night my brother had been drinking. And it was like, oh. You know, sometimes when I'm removed from them, I forget that they're still in their disease. And so I've been calling my brother at work instead during the day. And, and so I get to just say hello to him and that I love him. And now he hates anything to do with emotions. It's like, don't say I love you. You know, don't do that. When my mom died, we uh, we had a funeral. My mom was going to be cremated. And I decided she asked all of us what we wanted and what we were okay with. And I finally said, I'm not okay with cremation. So we went shopping for a plot together. And she found this great little cemetery. And when we had the funeral, I um, like I said, I'm a lot younger than my siblings. And... And I'm a lot shorter. I'm the smallest, the youngest, and the loudest in my family. And my brother's 6'3". They're all from the South. I I love listening to Danny last night. It sounds like all my relatives, and he looks a lot like my brother. And, you know, so I'm I'm much smaller than him, and I thought I was going to pass out at the funeral. And I thought, oh. I tied on my brother's shirt, and he looks at me, he's like, don't puke on my shoes, I just shine them. <laughs> and turn back around, and, and you know, that's the emotion that my family does. It's, it's none. <laughs> and because I was raised in California and they were all raised in the South, they always just said, oh, you know, she's not one that was raised in California. <laughs> so, um, and, and like I said, my sister is, is the untreated Al-Anon, and she, um, she always thought that she was my second mother, and and that was difficult. And, and learning how to do things differently with her in this program, it's much more difficult to deal with an untreated Al-Anon sometimes than it is an active alcoholic. <laughs> and I got to learn how to treat her differently, too. And then stop. Um, she always wanted to fix me, and she always wanted to know everything about my kid. And I finally had to take myself out of the middle and say, if you want to have a relationship with my son, you get to have it, but I'm not sharing any information. And, and so they don't have a relationship right now. And today and that's just between them and God and so again it's like I think the point is that my life doesn't look the way that I wanted it to and if I can stay out of out of needing it to be the way that I think it should be I'm much happier you know this is my family this is what I do you know I go to a meeting on Friday night and it's a family afterward meeting and there's an AA speaker and an Al-Anon speaker you know a lot of times on a Friday night I feel pretty pathetic being an alcoholic you know an AA and Al-Anon meeting you know instead of having a life but if I don't go to these meetings, I can't have a life out there. Um, I practice here so I can go out in the real world and, and do this deal. And, um, you know, today I do have more than just program. When, when I finally got into here and stuck in here, this program was it. It was everything. And, you know, I finally come to a place where I do have relationships with people who are normies and who don't know that I come to this program. And, you know, I protect my anonymity out there. And, and I do. I have those relationships. And some of them have come as a result of doing um, doing an amends. I needed to make an amends that had been on my list for like 10 years. And I had written that amends. And my sponsor, it was one of the first amends that I had done. And I was asked to write it out. And um, it was one of those really difficult ones. And so I wrote it out. And I read it to her. And she said, that's great. Now rewrite it like you really meant it. And ask what you can do to make it better. And so I did, but I, I also knew that I wasn't ever going to be able to find this person. So I um, I openly wrote what, you know, what my part was and asked what I could do to make it better. And she said, okay, great, where's the last person, this, you know, place this person lived? 
and I told her, and she said, okay, now, you seal the envelope, and this is how you send it out. You send it to general delivery to that city. I'm like, you mean I have to send it? And she said yes, and it came back a few weeks later, and I put it in my drawer. And um, after Lori died, I had to think about, you know, am I... Am I right on my side of the street? Am I right with everything? And there was still that amends hanging out there. And so I decided that I would start looking for this person. And so I did. I started looking for him. And, you know, the Internet's a great place. I, I, I put in the name and all these places popped up and this is where they lived. And so I, I, I found him and I went to my sponsor and I said, I really need to make this amends. And he said, well, I'm not sure. that you should make that amends. He goes, what I want you to do is, um, is I want you to draw me a tree and come over to my house tonight. Draw me a tree? Okay. And my father doesn't ask me to do anything, so I take out my little paper and my pencils and my colored pens, and I draw him a tree. And I go to his house, and um, I, I go, okay, I did what you asked me, and I have him the tree. He starts laughing hysterically. He lays down on the floor and starts cracking up, crying, laughing. I'm like, what the hell? You asked me to draw your tree. Is it that bad? And he said, well, I asked you to draw me a tree of who these people are and where they fit in so I can tell you whether or not to make this amends. <laughs> so he kept my tree. <laughs> and then we talked about it. And, um, and after we talked about it, deciding whether or not it was going to cause anybody harm, including me, um, his opinion was that it would cause harm and that I shouldn't make this amends, and so I went and made the amends. <laughs> because I really felt like I needed to be done with this, and so I, w- I had to go through a number of people to get to this person, and what I had to do was open up some old doors that I was a bit nervous about opening, and one of my favorite lines in the AA literature is we will no longer regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, and I had shut the door firmly on my past, because I came from a very violent situation, and so I had left it and closed the door and moved on. And at the time, that was the best thing to do. And so opening those doors was a little scary. And so I went, and, uh, you know, I called the first person, and I was amazed at what happened. This person said, oh, my God, where have you been? We missed you. We loved you so much. And, and they actually said, we're so sorry that we didn't do this, this, and this. We didn't know what was really going on. Not until you were gone, and then we couldn't find you. And... Um, he said, here's the phone numbers, and you should call this person and this person, too. And I wasn't ready to do that, so I sat on the phone numbers for a week. And what was happening was I was going to meetings, and I went to this open AA meeting, and this guy was talking about doing amends. And he said that he had to have heart surgery, and he went to the hospital. And, again, it was he was thinking, am I right in everything? And he said, if I... And he made one of those bargaining deals. He says, okay, God, if you get me through the surgery, I promise to make this amends to my ex-wife. And he said he made it through the surgery, and then he had to go make that amends, and what, the, what freedom was on the other side. And so that kept happening as I was procrastinating through these, these phone calls. And so I made the next phone call, and again, I got the same response. It was so glad to hear from you, you know, and, and, and you need to call this phone number. And so it's even one more phone number, and I made that phone call, and I said, you know, it's been great talking to you, but I had a purpose. I am looking for so-and-so, and they said, there's Shani right here. And he said, Are you, do you want to talk to him? And I said, no. Um, you know, and then I felt like, you know, here this person is visiting somebody else's house, and I'm going to make an amends on the phone. I said, no. I said, would you do me a favor? I go, could you give him my phone number, tell him I have some unfinished business with him, and ask him if he would call me. And so he called me the next day, and I asked him if I'd amends. And he didn't want me to do it in person, but he, he let me do it on the phone. And what I found out was that I had made the wrong events. You know, there was a whole lot more to the story that I didn't know about. And so, um, you know, I asked if there was anything I could do to make it right. And, and I got to, I got to be on the other side of that. But what happened was, is I got back by people from my past that I'd never, you know, that I'd let go of 18 years ago and I had nothing to do with. And I'm just amazed. You know, that's what happens in this program. And those people are part of my life today. And they don't know that I come to this program. And, um, you know, I come to Al-Anon because I love alcoholics and drug addicts. And they're, they're all ex-drug addicts and alcoholics. And they found their own way in sobriety without program. And I get to just let them be there and not, you know, not sure where I'm at. You know, they found their peace and I get to have a relationship with them. And for me, that's the, um, 
the beauty of this program is to have back those things that I, I like I said, the passion for me was with amputation. I just cut people out, and so I've opened some of those doors and gotten to have relationships with them again, and, and they haven't been easy. You know, there was a lot of um, a lot of things to talk about, and uh, and yet there were some really good things that came out of that. And I loved what um, what Rick was sharing yesterday. You know, it is suggested that women sponsor women and then sponsor men, and that that's not my story. I have a sponsor and I have a not sponsor, and my sponsor is a male, and my not sponsor is a woman. And when I was um, I had a sponsor who was traveling a lot, and I, uh, she kept leaving town, and she'd be gone for three or four months, and so I asked this woman if, if I could talk to her, and she's very, um, she's been in the program 33 years, she's very, um, very tight-knit, and uh, she said, well, I don't sponsor people anymore, but you can call me, and she's let me into her life, and she showed me some amazing things about this program, and what happened was she really became a, a part sponsor, and, and she, um, I finally started calling her my not sponsor, and she thought it was funny, so she lets me call her my not sponsor. <laughs> and then when my son was using girl bad, and things were things were really insane in my home, and it was with me and my son and the psycho cat and the other psycho cat he brought home by then, and the police at my house a lot, and you know this crisis was in the middle of the night, and so I um, had been talking to this man and. And I, he said, when are you going to get a sponsor? And he says, what's, you know, what's your hesitation? I said, because I'm afraid to ask the person I want to be my sponsor. Said, what's holding you up? And I thought about it. I'm like, will you be my sponsor? And then there was dead silence. <laughs> and he said, I'll temporarily be your sponsor. And so we were talking for about six weeks. And what I found out was that his sponsor was out of town. He was waiting for his sponsor to come back into town so he could talk to him. And he finally talked to his sponsor. And, and again, it was the same thing. It's like, okay, as long as it's working and this is Al-Anon, then it's okay, and, and it's worked. You know, he's been available in the middle of the night, and he hasn't been afraid of my life. You know, there have been people in Al-Anon that have been afraid of my life. And and that is one of the things that I get, get to give back is that I've been in those places when, you know, there's drug addiction and violence and crime and police and, and same stories that I wouldn't tell anybody else, you know, out in the real world. Um, and so it's worked. And, you know, one night... When my son still had that car that I couldn't get back, he, um, my son called me one night and he said, we're at the mall and I got a flat tire and we're in the parking structure, what do I do? And so he, he asked me, so I told him, I said, you know, you call the tow company? And he goes, well, we have the special bolts on the tires. I'm like, okay, we'll tell them that. So he called me back in a little while, talking and screaming and the stupid tow truck driver, they brought too big of a truck and it couldn't get in the parking structure and so we had to push the car out, we pushed it out, and then they didn't have very tools to change the tire. Okay. He's like, so we have to wait another three hours. I'm like, all right. And so again, I'm, I'm trying to let the kid have the dignity to do his own deal and he calls me back in a little while and he says, we couldn't wait any longer, we needed to get where we were going. <laughs> so they had taken some fix-it flat and put it in the tire we had to drive it really fast on the freeway so that it sealed. And now they were five or six cities away in the ghetto of Long Beach. And uh, he said, and it went flat again, so we left it. Here's where it is. And um, we're going to a party. It was about 11 o'clock at night, and I called my sponsor, and I said, I have to go to the, you know, downtown Long Beach to some neighborhood where my car is without a tire, will you go with me? And he said, sure, I'll be right there. You know, and he came over and we drove to Long Beach and we found the car. You know, and I, I love people in the disease. They had completely stripped my car. They'd taken out all of the stereo equipment. And it had this huge stereo equipment. They'd taken out that, all of that and left the jack on the front seat and this little tiny spare tire on the side. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, priorities. They got the stereo equipment left the car. But it was my opportunity to get my car back. <laughs> so um, we called the tow company. They said it would be about an hour. And my sponsor said, oh, I saw a donut shop around the corner. And we drove around the corner, and we were making things just make fresh donuts. So we had hot donuts and cold milk. I had a sponsor meeting at midnight in the ghettos in Long Beach. And, you know, that's it, you know. That's why my sponsor works for me is that, you know, he's available and he's not afraid of my life. And, 
and those are the things that I was going through, and I didn't have to do them by myself. I had somebody who could hold my hand and, uh, and laugh with me, and we laughed a lot about the escapades that my son was in. You know, and that was, that was the biggest freedom I got here was to get the laughter back. You know, it's sad, and it's, you know, I hate the disease. I hate watching people in the disease, and, um, and yet I, there was nothing I could do, but I had my sense of humor, and I remember the night that, um, my son was, um, my son was in a rehab in Mexico when they decided to close all the, um, the Mexican rehab, and so they were deporting all of the kids. And uh, so they called me to tell me that they were closing them all down, and they were going to be transporting my child, and they would be calling me later. And I was just in a panic, and I went to this, my normal regular meeting on Friday night, and my sponsor was there, and he said, turn off your phone. And I said, no, 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 I have important things. He says, no, you don't have anything more important than this meeting right here, right now. And I said, but you don't understand. He says, no, turn off your phone. And so I turned off my phone, and I let it go for that an hour and a half. And, and that's, you know, I got my recovery. And, and then when I got the phone call again at midnight that my son was in, um, what was it, Child Protective Services in San Diego. And I said, well, I'm not coming to pick him up. You guys can hang on to him. And I said, if you're not here within this many hours, then we will be charging you with neglect. So one more time at midnight, I called my sponsor. I'm like, do you want to go to San Diego with me? <laughs> and so we got to go pick up my son. And again, it's like those are the things that, that I've had to do in this disease. And, and because my son was a minor, there was a lot there was a lot of different things that I did that I didn't do with the alcoholics that were adults. And and I got to, um, again, learn how to love my kid, whether he was using or not, and, and then come to the point where, it, you know, not know whether he's using or not and, and let him move out and continue to have my life and and so that's what I've done. Um, it, it seems the hardest thing to do when I when I was faced with, with my son using was that I, I felt so my job had been to raise his child, to nurture him, to teach him and then to have to let go of them felt like part of my own self, you know, and I had to, to that, it was just so difficult to let go of him and let him do his deal and, and continue to take care of me. So I learned how to go to meetings no matter what. I found my magic number of meetings, which was five, or I was crazy. And at that time I had started, um, I had started sponsoring an Alateen meeting, which saved my life. You know, I, um, that first time that my son moved out, a woman had asked me to go to a retreat. And I didn't have anything else to do, so I said, okay, I'll go. And she said, it's for allocating sponsors. I said, but I'm not a sponsor. She said, it doesn't matter. And I went to this incredible workshop, and I decided that if it was God's will for me to be an allocating sponsor, that I would be. And this woman kept asking me to substitute for her as a allocating sponsor. So I got to know the kids, and I wasn't so scared of them. And then she decided that she wanted to give up her commitment and asked me to take it. And it was an amazing experience. You know, what I found was that, um, you know, I would walk into that room and I would feel like I was 16 or 17 again. And I, I felt like a little kid and, and I learned so much from those kids. You know, especially since by that time I knew that I'd grown up in an alcoholic home. And so while my son was doing his deal and incarcerated and in and out of rehabilitations and mental institutions, I got to be there on Thursday night and um, get a piece of recovery. And then I would go to, I'd go to open AA meetings so that I remember that there's nothing I can do to save that kid or any of the other alcoholics or drug addicts that I love. And I am so grateful for the, the sober members of AA that has taught me so much. You know, like I said, I go to a Friday night meeting if there's an AA speaker and I go to a Monday night meeting also with there's AA speakers and um, I get the hope that this program promises me that there's hope for the alcoholics still out there and there's nothing I can do to take care of me. And and so that's what I do. Um, when I first came into the program, there was, you know, take what you like and leave the rest. And so there were some things that I, I, I didn't like, so I didn't take them. And one of them was I absolutely did not believe that alcoholism was a disease. 
And um, being the analytical person that I am, I did some research on it. And I found out the, the model that they actually did the alcoholism the disease on and how many people that they had surveyed and said, man, this isn't, this isn't fit for me. And I'll never forget the moment that I actually believed that it, it was a disease. And it was, I was standing in my living room and my son was bigger than me by that time. And he was sucked up and he was dirty and he was on whatever he was on and he was grabbing obscenities at me. And I was standing there and what I saw was that blonde-haired, green-eyed kid that I loved, that little boy. And it was at that moment that I was able to separate the person from the disease and say, wow, this is the disease talking, this isn't my kid. And, and from then forward, I've been able to go, wow, this really is the disease. And, um, and it's changed, it's changed how I get to act with other people because then I get to give them their dignity. And again, like I said, my brother is an alcoholic and a drug addict. I didn't know he was a drug addict. And because we didn't speak for 14 years, we did, but not on any level. We, we interacted once in a while when I would be visiting. And I had to go back one year and, my dad had been sick, and he had a heart attack, this little heart attack, I don't know what they call him, and I really wanted to go see him, but I was afraid to leave my house, because I had a drug addict living in my house, and I couldn't figure out how to get him on the plane with me, so I knew I was going to have to leave him at home, and so I devised a plan, and some friends came over, and we bolted all the windows shut, we changed all the locks, and... Um, my sliding glass door was on the outside, so it was a little tricky there. So we, again, bolted this bolt in there, got it screwed shut. And I made arrangements with another parent for him to stay there. But I found out later it was this woman was smoking pot the whole time. <laughs> and I didn't know it. So um, I went to go home, and um, I didn't want to stay with my, my dad. Like I said, you know, didn't want to have to make any amends. And my stepmom has a hundred rules, and I break eight of them before I walk in the front door. So I decided that I would stay with my brother. So I called my brother, and I asked him if I could stay with him. And, and by this time, I had been treating him with dignity instead of with the disdain that I had treated him with for so many years. And so we had a more civil relationship, and I um, was only going to be there one night. I flew out on Saturday morning. was coming home Sunday night because, like I said, I was afraid to leave my house for much longer than that. And I stayed with my brother, and my sister-in-law went to bed, and we were sitting there talking, and my brother told me his story, and I'd never heard it before. And like I said, my brother doesn't talk much about feelings or anything, for that matter. And he told me that he had a problem with drugs, and how he had to come off of them. And we had this amazing conversation, and again, it was, you know, if it hadn't been for this program and what I've learned here, which is to, you know, to treat you with love and kindness the way that you guys treated me when I got here. I wouldn't have had that conversation with my brother. I wouldn't have been able to have that relationship with him. And those are the gifts, you know, because I really never thought. I thought my brother was an asshole, and, and he was, but so was I. And I, I treated him like he was an asshole, and so what did I expect but to be treated back like that? And so we had this wonderful weekend, and I came home, and my house had been broken into. And, uh, you know, my son came home, and... I said, what did you guys do? And he's like, what are you talking about? You guys had a party here. He said, we cleaned up. <laughs> I said, you forgot the puke in the sink. He's like, oh. You know, and it was like, but again, it's like, what I've learned here is that um, I go where I'm supposed to go, and I'm supposed to go home that weekend, and so I had to let go of what was going to happen in my house. And, and after that weekend, I decided to stop bolting the, the doors from the windows and you know what, if you're going to come in, you're going to come in, and there's nothing I can do. So I locked my bedroom door, and that's how I live with my bedroom door locked, and the house is always open. And, you know, it just changed everything. There was no more control battle. It's like the door's open, come on in. And, and he stopped doing that, and um, I think he went to jail shortly after that anyway, but... <laughs> um, you know, when I came here, I was pretty angry, and I didn't know it. I remember at my first... My first home group, I think every other word out of my mouth was the F word. And, and again, when Jimmy asked me to speak, I'm thinking, why are you asking me to speak on spirituality? I cuss like a sailor, and I've been in this dark place. So um, anyway, this, this guy at this meeting one night after the meeting, nobody would hug me when I first came in the program. And this guy grabbed me, and he put his arms around me because, you know, you're all tough on the outside. He goes, but you're jello on the inside, just like me. 
And I thought, yeah, that's how I am. You know, I'm scared and afraid on the inside. And, and tough on the outside because that's what I've had to do to survive where I've been. And I can't remember what I was going to say. Anyway, I was angry when I got here, and I'm not angry anymore. You know, and I've learned so many things here um, from from other people. There's a couple of people, specifically my sponsor and another person, who have taught me how to go up to the newcomer and welcome them and say hello. And I am one of the shyest people in the world. When I got here, you couldn't have paid me money to come up here and speak. Although I wanted all of your attention, I just didn't want to come up here, you know. Um, and, and they taught me how to go up to the newcomer and to introduce myself and to be in situations that I never thought I could do. You know, like I said, I'm shy and I've gotten to do things that I wanted to do that I couldn't do before I got here. And one of the things I've, like I said, because I'm shy, I, I've always wanted to do things on the stage. And this woman asked me one year if I wanted to do um, a play for a fundraiser. And I said, sure. You know, I knew it was a musical, so I said, I'll help with the props behind stage, whatever you want me to do. She said, okay. And the next week she gave me my script, and I'm like, this is like talking, singing, dancing. But I can't do that. She said, yeah, you can. She said, I heard you talk. And I'm like, no, I can't hold a tune. I can't do that. And she says, I'll walk you through it. She says, I'll hold your hand. And she came to my house every week, and she helped me get over my fear. And, um, you know, I got to get up on that stage and sing and dance and, um, and have a good time. And, and that's what this program's given me is my life back, you know, to be able to do the things that I want to do and, and to come here and not be afraid to introduce myself to people. And, and like I said, the work that I've gotten here has been just amazing. Um, let's see what else there is. You know, there has just been so much that I have gotten back from being here. You know, I've gotten my life back and relationships with people and friends and a family. And um, and on most days, my dignity, I still find that the place that I struggle the most with using my program is in the workplace. And so, again, God never has any mistakes. I was hired by somebody who's 25 years sober. The company is owned by somebody who's in program. And I work with program people all day, so if I am, um, you know, we call each other out on our stuff, and it's, it's pretty cool. And if I'm having a bad day, I can ask somebody to go outside and we get to talk program, and, and that's been pretty cool. Um, I think I'm almost out of things. <laughs> I am grateful to be here. I um, I definitely know that, that I was given my life back. And I hear people in AA say that um, they saved their life. And for me as an Al-Anon, it saved my life. And I mean that literally. I was living in an abusive situation that was filled with, you know, violence and drugs. And and had it not been for, you know, that, that priest that 12 stuff me, you know, I might have died. And... Um, and instead I get a chance of a new life and I, like I said, I get friends and, and even in the, even in the darkness, you know, I've, I've been whining for a year and a half that I, I really miss Lori and I was whining to my not sponsor and, and telling her how much I miss Lori and, and she said something really wonderful to me. She said, had Lori not died, you and I wouldn't have the friendship at the level that we have it. And I wouldn't have had the friendship that I have with, with Lori's husband today. And, and I have a different relationship with her children because she's not here. And I, I don't miss those, I don't miss those miracles anymore because it's coming here. You know, I look for them and, and like my little pennies this morning and, and the rose that someone gave me, thank you. You know. So, um, thank you for letting me be here. <laughs>